everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelins and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We are releasing this a week later than usual. Some, some cool family stuff. Just got back college orientation for my daughter. So uh, all good stuff there. But we're back in town now. We're wrapping up the clay court season with my co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink. When we talk clay, we must talk Mr. Rafa Nadal. Steve, I think Patrick McEnroe tweeted uh, after the final, what's one word to describe Rafa on each surface? And, and my response was to clay. And I said, indescribable. And I will say, if you were just born today, or if you are 90 years old today, and I hope everybody lives a long, long life, I don't think anybody alive today will see this duplicated. And the numbers speak for themselves. We can dive into it a little bit. Steve, you've covered tennis a long time. Can you, I, I'm not smart enough to describe it in words. Maybe you are. I'll give you an opportunity, and I'll give you more than one word to describe it. <laughs> you know, he just he just has a fighting spirit and a resolve, unlike anything we've ever seen. And as far as the, the uh, extraordinary achievement of winning 14 French Opens, think back. I remember so well. When he won his first, he won 05 through 08. He'd won four in a row. And we thought, gee, maybe, you know, he could end up with seven or eight. He could get it, you know. And then he loses to Soderling in 09 and goes on another tear. And he wins 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Now he's got nine. And then he had, again, a few more losing years. And he won 17 through 20. It's just, when he got to 10, we all thought it was the greatest achievement we'd seen in sports, never mind tennis. Now he's at 14. And... I'll say it, as I've said it every year, it wouldn't shock me if there was one more in his pocket, that if he was healthy enough to play this game next year and he's not, and the foot is somehow cooperating more than it is at the moment, uh, he, he doesn't lose his motivation to keep winning there year after year. So I, 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 I don't, I don't, I should have the words as a writer. I don't, I only have the thoughts. I only have the perceptions. But he, he, he clearly is an inimitable character, not only in tennis, but in, in sports. You know, I'm looking over your shoulder to your two, just two of uh, your great books that you've written. The, the greatest tennis match of all time is one of them. And right next to it is Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited, two great books. We have to refer to Pete in this because before the big three here, Pete was the record holder with 14 Grand Slams, which we thought was unbelievable. No one had ever match that number before right he was the record holder rafa has 14 roland garros titles alone 14 alone he has matched pete um well think about it david i mean you know you're right and just think about it we marveled that pete won seven wimbledon's so roger did manage to break that with eight but still and novak managed to get nine australians which is remarkable but this is one, no, to get back to your original point, it's, it's just, it's inconceivable that anybody could break it because think about it. He, he won one of, one of them in his teens. Then he won a whole slew of them in his 20s and he's won five in his 30s. So, I mean, you're, you're only supposed to, there should only be a window conceivably of uh, at maximum 10 years where you could have a shot, much less secure the victories in all those years. And the other remarkable thing is, even if he is unassailable on clay, he's never lost a final here. I thought that was remarkable for Pete at Wimbledon, too, to win seven Wimbledon finals and never lose one. This is 14 times. Novak's nine, was Novak 9-0 in nine, finals at Australia? 
spectacular. But I mean, that means you, you look at it starting with Mariano Puerta in his first final, and then at the, the, the string of finals against Roger from 06 to 08, and he had a win over Soderling in the finals, and he's beaten Novak in three finals, and Stan in the finals. And he's had a lot of different types of opponents confront him, David, on that court. And obviously, they all were having great tournaments to get to the finals. But he's been unstoppable in those finals. It just, it's just extraordinary. Yeah, it really is. And we're going to get more in, into Rafa a little bit later. But I do want to start with, with the women's final. And, and I'll, I'll say this about Coco Goff. I did, not see, I did not see her getting to the final of this tournament. This was such a great run for her, both her and Iga Sviantek. Neither player lost a set en route to the finals. You know, I'll, I'll set it up with Coco. You know, we, we all remember her run. Uh, in 2019, right, when she burst onto the scene. And we've said this several times. She had a great 2019. I thought the COVID pause really hurt her momentum. And she's had some ups and downs since um, that great that great start in 2019. Everybody was in love with her. You know, this was a fantastic tournament for Coco. And I, and I'll, I'll, I want to hear your thoughts on this because – I think very rarely when you get to the elite in, in whatever industry you're in, right? It doesn't just have to be professional tennis. Sure, you're going to have some strengths that are a little stronger than your weaknesses. But when you're at the top of any of any field, you generally don't have glaring weaknesses, right? And I think Coco, when you look at her second serve and you look at her forehand and, and, and Iga picked apart that on her forehand the whole match, that is a glaring weakness. And I don't mean that to be critical to Kogo. In fact, I think it's kind of the reverse. It's amazing how well she does everything else in that she's able to have this success and make it to the final of the French Open. She's only 18 years old. She will improve. I mean, her second serve and her foreign, there's no doubt, you know, her work ethic, you know, she's not ignorant about this. Her team's not ignorant about this. They're spending time on it. It will get better. But to see someone get to a final of a slam with a weakness like that, again, I, I, I don't know if it's really a criticism or more uh, <laughs> like an accolade of how well she does everything else to get to the finals. I'm eager to hear your thoughts on, on Coco. Well, I, 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 I don't disagree much with what you've just said. I would only add that I think that over the last couple of years, there have been time. There are there are these stretches, there are these spells where I feel like she's shored the forehand up and done a better job. But I do feel in the course of this tournament, David, that she was pretty smart about rolling it at a higher trajectory and not missing and waiting for the openings on her back end. Just tried to reduce, cut down on the errors. That was not going to work against Ega. So you're right, and Ega thoroughly exposed that wing. But I do think it's not something she's ignored. It's not something she's not aware of, just as she knows that the second serve has got to improve too. And I, I, I don't think that she's deluding herself or the people around her are to say, oh, it'll get better with time. We've got nothing to worry about. I think the work is constant, but it, it takes time. And what I think was great about this, she took advantage of a really advantageous draw, got to the final, all power to her, and then was beaten rather soundly by, by Iga. But the fact remains that it was a breakthrough moment for her. And yes. I feel like she's got this, this remarkable maturity about her. For instance, when, uh, when we had that final last year at the U.S. Open with Raducanu and Fernandez, she could have been very envious. I never had the feeling that she was. She felt like her time would come. 
her moment would come. This was a step, but it's not the last step. And I'm, I'm very encouraged because I mean, we know what she can do on the grass already. She's, that's demonstrable. And she's great on hard courts. You know, I mean, she's beaten big players like Osaka in majors. I, she can do it. And I just feel like she will not delude herself after this loss. She took a pounding in the final. That's okay. Yeah. Because it's, a, it's one of those learning moments, as they call them. And she will be better for it. She will yes. definitely. And, and you, me, and everybody, everybody who, who watches this sport knows that there's still a much higher ceiling for her. She's not close to a finished product yet. So no, Not at all. But I like that about her. She's, in, she's not in a big hurry. Yes, she wants to keep steadily improving, but she knows that uh, she's got a long career ahead of her and she's got a very good head on her shoulders and a, a really uh, attractive personality. And I just feel like it was nice to see her on that stage. Yes, she shed a few tears afterwards, understandable, but I think she'll have this and she's got this in perspective and she leaves Paris with her head held high uh, looking forward to Wimbledon and the open and knowing that she's got many more years of contending for majors and she will win her share. I have no doubt about that. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. I'm looking forward to seeing where, where, where it all goes from here. Great, great, great experience for Coco have to talk about Ega 35 match wins in a row. Now six titles in a row. She's won Doha Indian Wells, Miami Stuttgart, Rome, and now Roland Garros. Um, She's on a roll and it's not like uh, it's kind of uh, she doesn't feel like there's a, like the, the weight of the world is on her shoulders. She just goes out there. She does what she does. She destroys her opponents. Um, I, I mean, not much more to say. She is rocking and rolling. Well, she's she's a thorough professional, David. That's what I like about her. And she uh, relishes being at the top and protecting her territory in a way that Ash Barty never really did. Even though Ash, we saw her leave on top after winning the Australian, Ash was never all that comfortable with it. And we've seen Naomi struggle, but I have the feeling that in, in Iga's case, uh, she's going to really build on this and that, that she will be, she will be one of those number ones that is telling everybody else, you know, you're, it's, it's going to take a great performance from you to knock me off this pedestal. It's not going to happen. And you're going to get no help from me. Yeah. And Rath, talk about Coco and weaknesses. What, what weaknesses does Sviantec have? Uh, th- there really are none. And their forehand is one of the great weapons in the sport. She defends with it. She attacks with it. She's got a great two-hander. Her serve is improving. I, I just feel like this, to me, is really commendable, what she's doing. Because we haven't seen this in women's tennis for a long, long time. Somebody, you know, go on a big winning streak like this and act like she belongs and and uh, just sort of embrace the whole process and say this. This is where I'm meant to be. And I know Ash stepped aside and it would have been fun to play against her, but I, I, I'm, I'm here to stay. So I, yeah. I just I just feel like in her case, we're going to see a four or five year. There's going to be a period here of four or five years where she's not unbeatable, but where she wins clusters of majors tons of tournaments sure there'll be a few letdowns here and there i i don't think she will necessarily win wimbledon and the open but she will win wimbledon or the open and then it will go from there because if this is a two major year i I wouldn't expect her to do any less in 2023 and so on down the line she's she's going to become one of the great women players of all time 
No disagreement from me. So again, big congrats to both Coco Goff, Igor Sviantek. Um, futures are so bright. Uh, maybe a little bit different path, maybe go a little bit different pace um, for both of them, but the futures are so, so bright for both of them. All right, let's kind of go back to Roth a little bit. And, and our last recording was mere hours after the five-set battle after he beat Felix Ajir Aliassime. And I think I said to you, if he were to beat FAA in five, then beat Novak, then beat Carlos, then beat, let's say, a Medvedev or Tsitsipas, would this be one of his greatest accomplishments? The draw didn't exactly play out that way. But he did beat FAA in five. He then had two days off, I believe, when before he played Novak. We're going back a few days, so the, the, I'm trying to remember it all. He had two days off, played Novak, third year in a row. We all know what happened in this match. But what was interesting to me, this is the third year in a row that Rafa got up such a quick start. He was up 5-0 the previous two um, French Opens. This one, he's up 6-2, 3-0 a double break. You, I mean, 3-0 Rafa on clay up a double break. You think he wins the second set. He doesn't. But the start, what is going on where Novak cannot get off to a better start? Because that's a huge handicap when you're playing – Rafa uh, at the French Open. It's inexplicable to me. It's not surprising at all to me that Nadal comes out there thoroughly prepared to go to work and build a lead. It is surprising to me. Novak is so aware in the back of his mind about the two starts that you mentioned, where he got obliterated in the first set of the 2020 final indoors. And then a year ago came out and went down five love and managed to bring the set back to five, three, which helped him going forward. But you don't want to be spotting Rafa Nadal a set at the French Open of all places. So it did surprise me from Djokovic's standpoint that he didn't start better. He was really on the defensive in his opening service game and and playing almost nothing but defense that entire game. And he got broken and it just sort of unraveled from there. And then you mentioned the great comeback in the second. That was the one time that was the most sustained, aggressive tennis that he played in the entire match to come from two breaks down and break Rafa three times, win six out of seven games and take the set. But then uh, surprisingly, almost inexplicably, inexplicably again, you know, I mean, not again, you're not surprised that Rafa, I saw the look on his face when he lost the second set, he went into that little trot that he'll do going over to his chair, leaving his position on the court to go to the chair at the changer. And that little run was sort of like, okay, sets over start again. Yeah. It was his way of saying, I, I'm okay with that. I tried hard. I didn't win the set, but it, I, so I wasn't surprised that he comes out blazing again in the third. I was surprised that Djokovic was back on his heels again and, and getting broken right off the bat. And uh, he never really could recover from that one either. You know, he got, he lost the same score six, two as he'd lost the first set. Then we saw uh, Djokovic reemerge, reassess, reassemble his game in the four set beautifully. And he got the early break on Rafa for once he had the early break <laughs> and he took it and ran with the three love four, one, five, two and serves for the set at five, three. That was, that's a moment that will haunt him because he had two set points. And on the first, he just tried to angle a backhand cross court, David, to roll across court, to basically open the court. How many times have you seen Novak Djokovic hit that shot? It's cross court. It's over the lower part of the net. He never hits it in the net unless he happens to be going for a passing shot. Understandable of guys up at the net. You have to keep it low. Otherwise, 
he measures it perfectly. Well, he hit it in the net. Tells me that he was a little tight. Then on gets to another second set point. Rafa's return is in is in is short of the service line. Yeah. Novak hits a deep drive, and now Rafa comes back with another short ball. And Novak's approach was just awful. He hit it near the center of the court, not very deep. Uh, it, it should have been much closer to the sideline. He should have thumped it more. And Rafa passed him easily, and then eventually broke him. So that was a devastating blow to Djokovic. And then, and then they went to a tiebreaker, David. And in the tiebreak, again, it was kind of a, a strangely lifeless Novak until he got down 6-1. Then he saved three match points, but it was too late. Too little, too late. So I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm a little surprised that he didn't have a, a little bit more spark in that match. A little more sense of this is a must-win match for me. I've got to have this. If I don't win this match, Rafa can go on and win his 14th French and his 22nd major. I can't allow that to happen. You didn't sense that from him. It was he was a little passive. He was a little bit, uh, you know, the, the confidence. He was not exuding any confidence. While Rafa was just the opposite. And I have to say, David, I don't think I've ever seen over a four-set period Nadal hit his forehand down the line better mm-hmm. than he. It, that was a joy to watch. And he understood that he had to do that. He had to yeah. break the pattern of his forehand and Novak's backhand, get it over on, on Novak's, go down the line to Novak's forehand. And many of them were winners. And some of them were up balls that were getting behind him. And he would still muscle it down the line somehow. I mean, it, it, it was a great display from him, no doubt about it. Slightly subpar, definitely subpar from Novak. And, uh, you know, we'll never know what would have happened in a fifth set, but Djokovic just did not take advantage of his 5-2 lead in the fourth. And and I think Rafa was very ha- happy and relieved that it didn't go five. He would have liked his chances in five. I don't mean that Rafa would have been uh, discouraged or dismayed going into a fifth. But again, it was nice for him that he, he didn't have to play that extra hour or whatever it was going to take, <laughs> even if he was going to win the match. So he's now beaten Novak eight out of 10 times at Roland Garros across their careers, which is remarkable. Because if you look at the career record, it's 30-29 for Novak. But the whole reason that, excuse me, that Rafa is so close in the rivalry is the clay court superiority. And this was yet another example of it. You know, a a couple of fun facts. uh, And I know we've talked about this off, uh, you know, off before, off the recording, but the that quarterfinal was only the third time, you know, according to the odds makers, that Rafa was an underdog and Roland Garros. It was the 2005 semi versus Roger. It was the 2015 quarterfinal versus Novak, and now it was this quarterfinal match. And and you know, I don't even know. I told you this, but I, I posted a little video after this match. Not I didn't wait till after the final, but um, I did it after this match, and I said. You know, a wise man often often admits when he's wrong, and and I and I'll say, I, and and I mean, the easiest bet in the world most years is will you take Rafa or the field and Roland Garros, and most of the time you're going to take Rafa. We talked about this with Jan Michael Gamble this year, maybe, and we recorded with Jan Mike before the first ball was hit in this tournament. Was this the year that you may want to take? It's really not the field, but you know what I mean—the seven guys that Rafa would have to play to win a title. Um, and I was leaning, especially before this match with Novak, I was leaning a little bit slight favorite to Novak. Um, not because you doubt Rafa, but 
you're looking at the other guy across the net that Rafa's facing. Novak's pretty damn good. So <laughs> with everything well, with Rafa's David, foot. David, no apologies. Listen, Jim Courier said on Tennis Channel right before the match that he, he felt he wasn't dismissing Rafa, but he thought that Novak had to be the clear favorite going in. And, and let's, let's look at the circumstances. Novak has, has come off winning Rome without losing a set, having lost the week before in a really spectacular three-setter to Carlos Alcaraz, where in defeat Djokovic was first rate. So he's come from narrowly losing to Alcaraz, sweeping through Rome, winning his first four matches at Roland Garros without losing a set and beating Schwartzman one, three, and three. He just embarrassed Diego, who's one of the best clay court players in the world. So he was definitely playing his, some of his best tennis in a long, long time. And Rafa, we didn't know. None of us could really know how that foot was going to respond. Right. We, we all had to be affected by what we saw in Rome against Denis Shapovalov, where he could barely finish the match and where he announced afterwards that the foot was really acting up again. We also knew, by the way, that preceding that, the foot had been a bit of a problem even during Indian Wells before the rib injury. Right. So that's a lot going on there. It, wrecked, it ruined his preparation in many ways. He got two tournaments in, didn't come close to winning either one of them. This is not standard procedure for Rafa Nadal. So all of the, all of the indications were, despite the fact that we know he's the greatest clay court player of all time, that this was one of those moments where you felt like Djokovic had a, had a, had a major opportunity, a great chance. And that's why I said that. And when we went, when we recorded the last time, when I said, it didn't feel right that I was saying, Oh my God, Rafa's maybe a slight underdog to this. It didn't feel right when I said it. And I said it on the video that I made after the match, but I'm not making that mistake again. I'm going with Rafa (laughs) until he's done. (laughs) Another thing too, he also Nadal in, in addition to all those, stats on Djokovic and not losing any sets from Rome through the first rounds of, of four rounds of Paris that Rafa had come off a five hour, four hour, 21 minute match against Felix. Yes. But we don't know how he's necessarily going to respond from that match either. Uh, you know, with, with so little time to recuperate and, and yet he comes out blazing in that. So clearly, and listen, in the backs of our minds, I think we all knew he surely had to be getting some kind of injections because there wasn't any way he was going to get through that tournament without them. So that was not shocking at all when he finally revealed that. But there was, but then you heard the stories about after one of his early round matches, he could barely walk. You know, I mean, so the question is, no doubt that they, they were working during the matches, but it still took, it, it, everything had to go just right for him right. to have this come off. So this was a year where, theoretically he should have lost right but it also shows you what this the the that the incomparable size of his heart and his drive and i will say this he takes pressure off himself and he was saying it again even after the tournament with christian amon poor on cnn he repeated what he's been saying during the tournament no if you know if i don't get the most majors you know like he's not going to lose any sleep over it it's true that he doesn't get as obsessed with it as maybe novak does but it means a lot to him uh, he, he, he wasn't going through all of this torture with the shots to just make a decent showing and go up and shake Felix's hand, having lost to him in the fourth round. That would not be a happy ending for him. And I don't think he would have felt leaving it that, that it was what he had in mind when he came to Paris. So, but I think he, he's masterful in the way he uh, deflects the pressure. He, he, he fends it off by downplaying what he's doing or the importance of what he's doing and talking about how to him what matters is being out there competing. Yes, he does love to compete. 
but he loves even more to win. And that's what makes him one of the all-time great champions. Very well said. Very well said. Um, you know, inexplicably, <laughs> because of how the draw kind of played out in the seedings and French Hope, they didn't take into consideration all the nonsense with Rafa. Rafa got a fifth seed. Medvedev was got the second seed. So he played Djokovic in the quarters. Um, obviously, you always want that later on in the tournament. He played Sasha in the semis. It was a war. Two sets. I mean, it was almost three hours. Was it just shy of three hours? Just over. By the it time they over three hours. Um, just over three hours by the t- when the when the Zarev injury occurred. So that's yeah. really yeah. Yeah. Terrible injury. Um, he, he, Sasha, as of the date of this recording, Sasha just had surgery. I guess he did tear some ligaments. So hopefully he gets, uh, hopefully he gets better soon. And, uh, cause they were, that, that was a good match. I mean, Rafa had four set points at five, four first set didn't capitalize. Then Sasha has four set points at six, two in the breaker. There's something going on with Sasha in his mind in big crucial moments in majors. He's won everything else outside of majors, Steve. And there's something going on in his mind at those toughest, most clutch times in the slams that there's just a mental block or something. He just can't seem to get over that hump uh, oh, it, in the most important moments of slams. Absolutely. It's glaring. It's just flagrant. And, in the, you know, to have his serve and have a 6-2 lead and a breaker, you, you wouldn't believe that it could possibly get away, but it did. And it was a combination of Rafa's brilliance and stick to and Sasha's fr- fragility as a competitor. But that shouldn't get away, and it did. And then after all that, they have that whole string of service breaks, eight breaks in nine games. But there's Sasha serving with a 5-3 lead in the second set, and he throws in three double faults and loses his – Three of the four points were double faults. So he had already injured himself psychologically before he had the really sad moment of ending the match on a physical injury that was just sheer bad luck. But you're right. He's got to evaluate this and figure out what's going on. Listen, he almost, when he played Carlos, it almost got away. He dominated that match for two sets with phenomenal serving and then really good uh play from the backcourt. He outplayed Carlos in the backcourt as well. So he's won the first two sets sweepingly, loses the third, fair enough, a, a break at the end of the third, but then he served for the match in the fourth, didn't close it, and had to end up saving a set point in the tiebreak to avoid a fifth set. Fortunately for him, he had just enough gumption and just enough poise to get himself across the finish line, and he deserved that win, don't get me wrong, but that's another example of how he can complicate things. Yes. And uh, yeah, it happened against Rafa again. And let's face it, David, happened against Rafa in conditions that Rafa really didn't like because the roof was up. Not only that, it, it, he was perspiring so heavily uh, that it was depleting him. And you could see it. It's not that he couldn't move or that he was that he was terribly vulnerable, but he wasn't he wasn't an overwhelm the overwhelming force, physical force that he usually is. There was some vulnerability out there, and I think a lot of it had to do with the perspiration. And Sasha looked surprisingly fresh, given what he was going through until the injury. He, he looked very strong physically. He looked like he was not as bothered by the, the humidity indoors the way Rafa was. So it was an opportunity. But again, you pointed it out. It's that, it's that, that incredible tension 
that Sasha goes through in all of these big matches. And it's just, you can, it's almost tangible. You can almost feel it. You can almost touch it. And it, it's sad to see for a guy with his physical capabilities that the, this keeps haunting him time and again. And as you pointed out, it's only the majors. Here's a guy that's won the ATP finals twice over the strongest of fields, beating Djokovic in, in that first final. I mean, uh, you know, who's won a whole slew of Masters 1000 events, mm-hmm. which are the top tournaments outside of the slam. He He's won everything else. He's won everything else. He's the big players to win those events. So he knows he can do it. And it's not that he doesn't have the stamina to go best of five because he does. Uh, And yet time and again, I think it might've been very different right now for him, David, if he could have closed out Dominic team in the 2020 U S open final, because he was up to love in a break. And he was also serving for the match in the fifth set. If he could have secured victory that day and gotten the monkey off his back, maybe we'd be seeing more poised performances from him now at the majors. But listen, hopefully he's going to make the physical recovery. I don't see how he's possibly ready for Wimbledon after this. this no, no, no. no way. But hopefully over the summer, we see him reemerge again. And by the open, he's playing great tennis. And uh, because he's so worthy of these prizes, if he would just tell himself that, remind himself of that. But what a head case he's become uh, at the Grand Slam events. Another, you know, even at the, even in Australia, it was a really disappointing performance. He lost early there. And, and you know, I guess he lost to Dennis. And it was just, a, you know, he just, a lot of people thought going into the Australian, ah, this is, he can do it. He could do it. And then when Djokovic was not allowed to play, Sasha's chances looked even better. And uh, you would have thought, had he given himself a chance to play Rafa and not lost early, that that was a good opportunity given that Rafa at that stage didn't have the matches or necessarily the belief. But Sasha, time and again, has somehow found a way uh, you know, it, it, this, this has just been confronting him and haunting him time and again at the majors. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And again, uh, very well said, Steve. And, you know, oh. Rafa, the, Rafa advances to the final plays Casper Ruud with that bottom half, that, that other half of the draw opening up. Um, you knew Rafa was going to be a huge, huge favorite against whoever he was going to play. Um, not really much to talk about. Great, great experience and great run for Casper. Um, also a, a part of the Rafael Nadal Academy down there. Um, Rafa wins in straight sets. Not really much to talk about. Uh, yeah, some more numbers. One unfortunate thing was, yeah, good first set. And and uh, Rude did a nice job to break Rafa once and keep it somewhat close. And then he goes up 3-1 in the second set, only to lose 11 consecutive games. Yeah. That's unfortunate. You wish he could have stayed with him a bit longer. Didn't think he was going to win the set even when he was up 3-1 in the second. But I thought that we would have seen him, you know, win a fair share of games in the third and make it a little more competitive and have it be more like, you know, a six, three third set wasn't to be Rafa was ruthless. He really exploited the opening of the thirds. And once he saw that chance to win a love set, he took it. And yeah, I forget the word Jim Courier uses to describe Rafa. I've said it in the previous episode as it gets, as Rafa gets rolling it, that, that, that snake all gets tighter and tighter and tighter and he doesn't uh, release. And Casper Ruud should learn from that because, you know, he's a nice guy and he was honored to share the court with Rafa, but he's got to understand that, you know, that what makes Rafa great is this, this drive to win and this, this tunnel vision, single-mindedness and the sense of just uh, having this 
sense inside you that you're just better than the guy on the other side of the court and he's not going to beat you. Casper doesn't quite have that yet. On the other hand, he had a spectacular tournament to get to his first major final. And, and he really, uh, he really handles, handles himself well. He represents the game well. So from that standpoint, it was a nice occasion. Just unfortunately, there was an inevitability to that final. And, and it, 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 it ended too swiftly for my liking, but a great performance from Nadal once more. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, I don't know. Doing these year-end segments, and we did ours, I don't know, I, mid-December, I believe. They're fun to do because we, we talk and we predict a few things and we see what pans out, what doesn't pan out. You obviously were spot on with Carlos. You had such high remarks for Carlos, and you see the year that he's having. You know, if you remember, we said – in that year end, we didn't know how Australia was going to plan, plan out with Novak, if he was going to play or he wasn't going to play. But we said there is a chance that if Novak doesn't play Australia and Rafa wins Australia, which was he's only won it once before this, this most current title, right? We said if Rafa, if Novak doesn't play Australia and Rafa can win it, and then obviously Rafa always has a good chance of winning Roland Garros. There's now a two grand slam. There could be a two grand slam differential. And here we are. We're now done with Australia. Novak didn't play. Rafa won it. We're now done with Roland Garros. Novak didn't win it. Rafa did. We're now 22, 20, and 20. And, uh, you know, we don't know how many more tournaments Roger's going to play. We don't know how long Rafa's going to go. He's doing this different treatment with his with his foot hopefully it works hopefully we can get you know a, a couple more years out of him Novak could easily still catch 22 but as you get these years go out right these younger guys are starting to get better and better and going deeper and deeper in slams this isn't a guaranteed three grand slam year for obviously not now, but I'm saying even next year, you can't go into any year and say, oh, Novak's going to win three of the four easily. I think that's gone. Um, I'm not saying he won't be able to catch and even surpass Rafa, but it's going to get tougher and tougher the longer this goes. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about that. I think it's really a question of, of him exploiting his opportunities. You know, he might have a two slam year left in him. This, the, the, who knows if he wins two slams this year, if he gets hot and wins Wimbledon and the open, but I'm thinking more in terms of next year and the year after, which I think by 2020, by the end of 2024, I would expect Novak to be maybe declining slightly. I mean, he's remarkable for 35, just as Rafa is at 36, but yeah, no, no, those big years, the 2015 with the three slams and last year, one match short of a grand slam and winning three more. No, that, you can't expect to do that anymore. He may have a two major year left in him, even with the rise of the young brigade, particularly of Alcaraz. But I think it partially is going to depend on how long he can stay at that top level. And also he can't afford. I really honestly believe, you know, having spotted the two major lead to Rafa now, Novak cannot afford to have Rafa win another one. He really, he needs some help in the terms of Rafa not being able to collect another of the premier prizes. There's no guarantees there because Rafa keeps surprising us. So it's fascinating. And it just means that when they're through, I mean, depending on what the, how the numbers end up, the, 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 the fans of both camps, each constituency, there's going to be some fierce arguments because, you know, the joke, 
crowd would say, wait a minute, he finished seven years at number one. Rafa did it five times, if that's how it turns out. That's where it is now. And, you know, Novak with 373, 374 weeks at number one, much more than Rafa. And then the, the Rafa camp will come back. Yeah, we got two more majors. And the Djokovic camp will say, yeah, but your, your deck is stacked too, too much on the clay. And you got 14 a year, 22. And the, and the arguments will rage back and forth. The careers, the respective careers are just astounding. And what, what I think we have to talk about, David, is that amidst all this, Federer becomes slightly forgotten. I mean, there was this time when we, we talked about Roger in the loftiest terms, and we shouldn't forget what a, what a comprehensive record he has. No, he doesn't have two, a minimum of two majors. That have, he didn't, never got a second French, and I don't think it's ever going to happen. But on the other hand, he, he had a dominance of the game in his prime. This period of 04 to 07 was just amazing when he, when he won 11 out of 16 majors there at one stage. And, but these guys, I think the argument is going to be, I, ha- I hate to say it, you know, from, 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 to the Roger fans, but I think the argument is going to come down much more. Most people are going to come down in the Djokovic or Nadal camp and not, not on Roger's side, uh, despite his prodigious achievements. It's, it's just remarkable. Well, maybe in 10, 15 years, I'll be looking over your shoulder, right? You'll have a book called Roger Federer Greatness Revisited, right? Because, I mean, it's, a, it's unbelievable. That, I mean, I, and again, if you, if you can, before we end, I know you talked to Pete about this. Did he ever imagine one person breaking 14? Maybe he did, you know, over time, well into the distant future. Um, no way did he ever envision three people, not only no, surpassing 14, but surpassing 14 by quite a bit. <laughs> no, he saw it coming quickly with better. He, he saw that coming by, say, 2007 or 8. He was seeing the real possibility that Roger could do it because he had he held Roger in the highest regard. But I don't think he at that stage, nor did anybody think that Rafa could win so many more majors off of the claim, nor could they ever envision 14 Roland Garros's. So and then meantime, Novak was being outshined and outplayed by both Roger and Rafa, you know, until he sort of turned the corner completely in 2011, because that was his third. That was his first three major year. Then he replicated it in 15 and again last year. So, no, Pete saw Roger coming, but I don't think he thought that the other two were going to get them. On the other hand, he he's very gracious about it all and not not resentful of any of them. And, and very uh, he's just enormously impressed with all three players. As tennis fans, I, we, we just got to marvel at, at all of these guys and um, everything they've accomplished. And we just got to enjoy it because this is so rare and. Um, they're doing stuff that, again, I, I don't think will be duplicated in, in, our, in our lifetimes. And I hope we all live a long time. We'll leave you with this number, 112 wins versus three losses in Roland Garros. Mr. Rafa Nadal, 14th Roland Garros title. Steve, thanks again. We may be having a very similar conversation about Mr. Rafa Nadal at the, after the 2023 French Open. <laughs> Yeah, well, let's just, yeah, it could well be. But in the meantime, let's just hope that this uh, move he's made to try to get himself ready for Wimbledon works. I, I want him to play there, you know, win or lose. You want to see him in the field and you want to see him healthy. And obviously he said, David, that he will not do the injections again. That's not happening. So he's got to be healthy enough to get through it. Maybe, maybe he would take some other uh, 
you know, medications, whatever, no shots. And, and, uh, but let's hope that he's healthy enough to do that because it'd be a more exciting event if he's in there along with Novak and, and the other leading players with the exception of Zarev and, and Medvedev, uh, that, that would add a lot of vitality to this Wimbledon, particularly if he made a really deep run because Rafa has not won Wimbledon since he took his second title way back in 2010. So it would be nice to see him back in the thick of things. And frankly, it'd be nice to see Rafa and Novak play on the grass again. They had a classic five-setter there in 2018. That in Novak 2018. Did. So you'd like to see that four years later. You'd like to see them uh, doing that again. I just shake my head because it's just unbelievable without what these, what these guys have been doing. Steve, thanks again. and. Uh, Looking forward. Wimbledon's going to be right around the corner, but we're going to, we're going to talk as we usually do um, real soon. So thanks again, Steve. This was fun. Thank you, David. Enjoyed it.